Welcome to Spiritual Gold, the teaching ministry of Dr. Richard L. Strauss. I'm Dr. Mark Strauss, and these podcasts represent the faithful exposition of God's Word by my father through his 21-year ministry at Emmanuel Faith Community Church. Our prayer is that through these messages, you would be encouraged and equipped in your walk with the Lord. Almost everybody knows the truth of Romans 6.14, which says we are not under the law, but under grace. We're well aware of the truth of Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, that tell us the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. We as believers in this age of grace are not subject to the Mosaic legislation with all its enforced obedience and its harsh penalties for nonconformity. The Bible teaches us we live in a new era of grace. God has always been gracious. But in this day and age, we see evidences of His grace that overshadow everything we've ever seen in past ages. We now obey God because we love Him, not because we have to obey Him. When my oldest son was about four years of age, came into the room where his mother was one time and said, Mommy, I don't like to obey. I just do it because I have to. Four years old. He had a lot of insight. He knew that he had to. He knew that it was healthier for him, physically speaking, if he obeyed. He obeyed because he was afraid of the penalty of disobeying. And that's the way most people in the Old Testament obeyed when they did obey. But now things are different. We don't obey God because we have to obey Him any longer. We obey Him because we've seen some great things He's done for us. We have a desire to obey Him. Some people have the erroneous idea, however, that since we're not under law but under grace, God doesn't expect obedience anymore. Uh, They think that they can do anything they please. They have license To live as they want. In fact, I heard yesterday about an evangelical church where there were meetings going on and this very thing was being preached from the pulpit. Now, if you really love the Lord, really love Him, you can do what you please because you're going to want to please Him and do what He wants. You're going to be saying, God, you love me and I I want to know what you want me to do because I want to please you. And God, you've blessed me so much Tell me what you want me to do because I want to obey you. That's grace. But there still are some standards. Because once we ask God, show me what you want me to do and how you want me to live and what standards you want me to live by, He's going to tell us. As a matter of fact, He's told us in the Word of God. And He beseeches us and pleads with us on the basis of His mercies and His grace and His love to obey Him. He doesn't threaten us. He doesn't manipulate us. He doesn't say, now look look how much I've done for you. Now the least you can do for me is to do this or that. He just keeps blessing us and pouring it on. And when we get a glimpse of what He's done for us, when we see these riches we have in Christ that we've been studying in the book of Ephesians, all these spiritual blessings that are ours in the heavenlies in Christ, we're going to be ready. We're going to say, Lord, 
Show me what you want me to do. And that's what God's about to do. He's going to show us in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25, some things He wants us to do. Some ways He wants us to live. Some standards He wants us to maintain. Beginning in verse 25 through chapter 5 and verse 2, we see those standards in relationship to believers. It is our walk in love, summed up in chapter 5 and verse 2. Beginning in chapter 5 and verse 3 and extending through verse 14, we're going to see our walk in relation to unbelievers. And the Apostle Paul calls that our walk in light. You see that terminology in chapter 5 and verse 8. So let's talk about our walk in love tonight. Next Sunday night, we're going to talk about our walk in light. And these passages of Scripture will reveal to us some practical principles for Christian living. Tonight, there's seven principles. Beginning in verse 25. The first one is truthfulness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Wherefore, on the basis of what we've learned, on the basis of what we saw last Sunday night, on the basis of our identification with Jesus Christ and His death to sin and His resurrection to new life, because our old man has been stripped of authority and that old nature no longer needs to rule our lives, because of that, Paul says, wherefore, put away lying and speak the truth, every man with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. This is our position now being expressed in our daily practice. Be truthful. Because truthfulness affects other believers. We are members one of another. What we say to other people is going to affect the welfare of the whole body. And if we're not honest with each other, then the whole body is going to suffer for it. We have so many little ways of being dishonest with each other, don't we? We tell half-truths. We allow certain things to go uncorrected when we know they're wrong and we know that somebody's being deceived. We give part of a story in in order to color it to our way of thinking. Sometimes we tell tales about other people that aren't really true or we exaggerate the truth to make ourselves look good. God says He wants us to have a passion for truth because we're members one of another. We ought not to be deceiving one another in any way. Because we're all going to hurt if we do. That's like the eye seeing some danger coming at a distance, but refusing to warn the rest of the body, closing the eye to it, and saying, well, everything's all right, folks, don't worry about it. And we walk headlong into the danger and the whole body suffers. Or it's like putting something into our mouth and our tongue tells us that that's spoiled food and it's going to be injurious to our bodies, but it doesn't really tell us. It just covers it up and says to the stomach, everything's going to be all right, just go ahead and take it. And the stomach takes it and the whole body gets sick. You see, when we deceive one another in the body of Christ, then the whole body suffers. And so God wants us to be devoted to the truth. To be absolutely diligent about speaking the truth. Because anything else is playing into Satan's hands. He is a liar, Jesus said in John 8, 44. And the father of lies... And he wants us to fall into a habit pattern of shading the truth because it hurts the body. But when we walk in love one for another, we put away lying and we speak every man the truth with his neighbor because we're members one of another. 
May I remind you that the very first sin to be openly disciplined and judged in the early Christian church was the sin of lying. God doesn't look very favorably on it. Put away lying, he says. Speak the truth. The second principle in verses 26 and 27, we might label self-control. It says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Now, they are difficult verses, and I have heard them explained over and over again, and I've read commentaries. I'm really not exactly sure why Paul said, Be ye angry. It's really an imperative. It's a command. Some Greek scholars say it's a a command of permission, however. There was such in the Greek language. I don't think Paul is saying, folks, you have to get mad. Now, please, that's not what he's saying. This is not a command in the sense that you must do this. But there is a sense in which Christians need to be angry. In the sense that Christ was angry in righteous indignation. And maybe in that way, the Apostle Paul is telling us we ought to be angry. Jesus was angry when he walked into that temple that day and saw that the the leadership of the Jewish nation had turned it into a Kmart and they had done it for their own own personal gain. He was upset about that. That bothered him and it was quite obvious that he was angry. When he evaluated the lives of the scribes and Pharisees and saw all that outer shell that looked so good, so moral, so righteous, but when he knew inside was rottenness and decay and corruption, it made him angry. He spoke out about it, no uncertain terms. But what's the difference? What makes anger sin? Be angry, but sin not. I think Christ's anger in spite of what we may think, or even the way I've just described it, was controlled anger. Furthermore, it was unselfish anger. It was anger for righteousness' sake, not for anything that he personally was suffering, not because of any injury that had been inflicted upon him. Anger becomes sin, first of all, when it's for self. When someone offends us or hurts us or doesn't pay any attention to us, or disagrees with us, or doesn't take our suggestions, and we get angry, that's selfish anger, that's sin. When our anger is uncontrolled passion that burns within us, when it causes our body chemistry to begin to change, and juices to begin to flow, then it's sinful anger, it's uncontrolled passion. When it settles down into a lingering resentfulness or a maliciousness that seeks injury or harm to others, then it's a sinful anger. When it's directed at people rather than at sin, it's a sinful anger. Yeah, God says be angry. But may I also remind you that down in verse 31, he says, let all anger be put away from you. Is that a contradiction in the Bible? It's the same root. It's the verb form in verse 26 and the noun form in verse 31. But it's the same root word. One place he says, be angry. The other place he says, put all anger away. He's talking about sinful anger. Put all that sinful anger, that's selfish, that's uncontrolled passion, that's resentful and malicious, that's directed against people. Put it away. 
Be angry, yes. There is a righteous anger. But don't let your anger turn to sin. You say, but yes, but I'm a human being. And I've got this sin nature. One of my weaknesses is my anger. And maybe that's true with many of us. And certainly we're going to let that anger well up within us periodically and maybe come out of our mouths once in a while. It's going to happen. What do we do about it? Well, the Apostle Paul suggested what we ought to do about it. He said in verse 26, Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. It's a good principle to follow. If our old sin nature gets control of us and we do let off that anger, don't let it settle down into a lingering resentment. It turns to malice and bitterness and hatefulness toward other believers. Deal with it immediately. How do we deal with it? Well, first of all, we acknowledge it to God. We tell Him it's sin. We confess it to Him. And then we go and acknowledge it to the people that we've offended by our anger because usually when our anger is expressed, it offends somebody. We need to honestly go to them and acknowledge that we blew it. We want to apologize. Are they willing to forgive us? That's what Paul means when he says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Dr. Lewis T. Talbot, whom many of you have known in past years, when he was in a pastorate, came to his church one day, early Sunday morning, to go over the notes of his message, which most pastors do on Sunday morning, which I do every Sunday morning, except I do it in my study at home rather than here at the church. And when he got into his study, he realized that the custodian had thrown away his notes. He thought they were scraps of paper that should be thrown away. And he was absolutely infuriated. He got a hold of the custodian and said some pretty ugly things. I can, I can relate to this, folks. I mean, I can really understand this. Babu, the other gets a hold of my notes and throws them away. I'm telling you, he's in trouble, you know? I mean... <laughs> I, I, can, I can just feel for what Dr. Talbot was going through. But he decided, you know, he decided that, that he was going to have to get up and try to preach the message without his nose, remember as much as he could from it, having prepared it that week. So he went up to the platform and sat down as the early part of the service progressed, began to feel very, very guilty and realized there was no way he could get up and preach the Word of God that morning with a clear conscience. So he got out of his seat and went down to the congregation. He grabbed a hold of the custodian. He said, I want to talk to you. Pulled him out into the foyer and he said, I've got to tell you that what I did this morning was sin. I had no right to be angry. God's going to take care of me. He's going to allow this to work out for good. And I want to apologize to you and I want to ask you to forgive me. That's not letting the sun go down in your eye. Now, he could have excused himself. You know, should have known better. Anybody can tell the difference between scraps of paper and and, notebook and, and notes for a mess. You know, he could have gone on and rationalized and told himself he had every right to be angry, but he didn't. He dealt with it as the Word of God wants us to deal with it. And to fail to deal with it that way is to do what Paul warns us about in verse 27. Neither, let the, neither give place to the devil. It's giving place to Satan. Just as telling lies is giving place to Satan... So expressing our anger selfishly and sinfully is giving place to Satan. Two principles, truthfulness, self-control. Third, in verse 28, is honesty and industry. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. 
Now, Christians steal. I know about Christians who steal. We all steal in some ways or other. Maybe we don't return that change when we've been overchanged at the store. I know it's getting harder and harder to do that sometimes, particularly when a computer overchanges you. You can get into more trouble trying to give the money back and waste more time and get more people mad at you trying to give money back to stores when they bill you by computer. Now, I realize that problem. My wife and I have had that problem. We don't know what to do about that. I haven't figured that one out yet. But I do know that when some grocery clerk overchanges you, God wants you to give it back because to do less than that is stealing. Sometimes we steal each other's reputations by spreading little stories about other people that we really aren't sure that are true. And even if they are true, we don't have any right to spread them because they're derogatory. Sometimes we steal credit that belongs to another person. Someone else did something and somebody gives us the credit for it. We just let it go by. You know, They're all little glory, never hurt anybody, we think to ourselves. And so we let it stand. Or maybe, maybe if we're in some sort of sales work, we misrepresent our product just a little bit. And consequently, we steal from the people we've sold to. Sometimes we steal promises from God, promises we've made to Him that we do not fulfill. Young people have a tendency to steal answers on quizzes periodically. Or sometimes we steal time from our employers, or more than time. Sometimes we slip things in our pockets when we walk out the door. Christians do things like that. God said, don't do that anymore. If that's been your habit pattern in the past, don't do it anymore. Let him that stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. Useful work is part of God's plan for our lives. It's good for us. We need to overcome dishonesty. As a Scotch lady went, went to church and Saw the pastor the next week and said, Pastor, I really enjoyed your message last Sunday morning. He said, oh, wanted to check her out. Now, what was the text? She said, well, I don't remember the text, she said, but I went home and took the false bottom out of my peck measure. Well, that's what God wants to do in our lives. See, I don't care about whether you remember everything I say or whether you can preach my sermon back to me. That really doesn't make a whole lot of difference. But when I see God working in people's lives, accomplishing the things He wants to accomplish, changing our way of living, bringing us into conformity to Jesus Christ, making us imitators of God, as verse 1, chapter 5 tells us to be. And I tell you, that makes me feel like God's at work in our midst. And God's using the ministry of the Word, and it gives me a great deal of joy. We need to act on these things when God speaks to us through the Word. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, so that he may have something to provide for his family with. Is that what it says in your version? Isn't this incredible? Paul doesn't say we ought to work to provide our needs and the needs of our family. He says we ought to work so we can share with people in need. It's an amazing thing to me. I guess he just takes for granted that we all know we have to work to provide the needs of ourselves and our families. He didn't have to say that. But one of the major reasons God wants us to work productively and usefully is so that we can have the joy and blessing of sharing with others who are less fortunate than ourselves. 
one of God's primary reasons for work. Most people who don't care about working don't have very much to give to other people. We need to obey the Word of God. Honesty and industry. Of course, when we steal, we hurt other people. When we work, we can help them. And that's walking in love. As Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 5 in the conclusion of this passage, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. This is all part of walking in love, you see. Truthfulness, self-control, honesty, and industry. Verse 29, mutual edification. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. That word corrupt is a word that means decayed or rotten. I was looking it up yesterday in a, in a lexicon, a Greek lexicon, just to see how this word was used. Found out it was used of, of rotten fish, spoiled fish. Now there's one for you. Let no rotten words proceed out of your mouth that have the smell of spoiled fish. Useless words, unwholesome words, words that turn people's stomachs and curl up their noses, you know. Corrupt words. Don't let those kinds of words proceed out of your mouth. What kind of words is Paul talking about? Well, I would certainly imagine he, was, he would include immoral words, shady stories, indecent language. I would certainly think he's including in that unkind words, gossiping words. Anything that is not edifying. You see what he says right on the heels of let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. I wonder if we cataloged everything that came out of our mouths, how much of it would be harmful to the body as a whole and how much of it would be useful in building up the body. And I have a suspicion that the words that come out of our mouths as believers, critical words, unkind words, malicious words, gossipy words, indecent words, would probably outweigh the words that minister strength and build up the body of Christ. Let's begin to weigh our words, Paul says. If our minds are filled with the love of Jesus Christ, then profitable words will come out. Words that build up, words that edify, words that minister grace, blessing, assistance, favor to the hearers. They minister grace. Do our words minister grace? Or do they create tension? Do they produce conflict? Do they destroy and decay and produce a product that would be analogous to rotten, stinking, soiled, spoiled fish. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is useful to edifying for the good of the hearer, that it may minister grace to the hearer. We need to talk about the Lord. We need to talk about His Word. We need to talk about answered prayer. We need to build one another up in our faith. Truthfulness, self-control, honesty, and industry, mutual edification. Verse 30 is a hard one to put a one or two word label on. Maybe I could try confessed sin. 
You may not like that one, but that's the best I can do. It says, but grieve not the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed unto the day of redemption. How do we grieve the Spirit of God? Well, in this context, we grieve Him by sin, obviously. We grieve Him by telling lies, by being untruthful. We tell Him by losing our temper, or, or we, uh, we grieve Him by losing our tempers. We grieve Him by not working, and by being dishonest, by stealing, by, by unwholesome language that tears down rather than builds up. We grieve Him by sin. He dwells in our hearts. The Spirit of God lives within us. And if he has to share his home, which is our hearts, with a lot of rot and garbage, he's not too happy about that. That grieves him. He doesn't, live, he doesn't like living in a garbage can. You wouldn't either. But in some cases, that's where he lives. There's so much that displeases him in the hearts and lives of some professing Christians. Don't grieve the Spirit of God. How can we keep, grieve, keep from grieving him? Well, obviously, one way is don't sin. Get victory over sin. But as you well know, we have that old sin nature and every one of us is going to yield to it. As we grow in the Lord, those times of yielding will be fewer and farther between by His grace and power. But we're still going to yield until Jesus takes that old sin nature away and makes us like Himself. Then He wants us to confess that sin. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Say the same thing He says about them. Acknowledge to Him that we know it's sin, that it grieves His heart, that it displeases Him, that it hinders our effectiveness, that it destroys our joy. Admit what He says about it. Confess it to Him. And then we can enjoy His forgiveness and go on walking with Him and growing in Him. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. But isn't it interesting that in the very same verse that exhorts us not to grieve the Holy Spirit, we learn that He is the same Spirit who seals us unto the day of redemption. I think it's very significant that the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of God's Spirit, put those two things in one verse. He said there are people who believe that when we sin, we lose our salvation. Some folks didn't agree with the way I interpreted 1 Timothy 3, 6 last Sunday morning. They think that when we get Bloated with pride, falling into the condemnation means losing our salvation. There are a number of things in the scripture that are relevant to that. For one thing, Hebrews chapter 6 teaches us very clearly that if we ever could lose our salvation, doesn't say we can, but if we ever could lose it, we could never get it back again. It is impossible to renew them again unto repentance, it says. And right here in Ephesians 4.30, in the very same verse that tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit by our sin, it reminds us that that very same Spirit, whom we grieve by our sin, seals us under the day of redemption. What a powerful testimony to the eternal security of the believer. Now that's not a license to sin. We already know God lays down some standards. We get a glimpse of what He's done for us if we're in the faith, if He's done His work of grace in our lives, if we've been made new creations in Christ Jesus, if we've truly been born again, our love for Him will grow and our desire to please Him will increase. The sin's still going to be there once in a while. We say we have no sin, we lie. We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us, John said, in the first chapter of his first epistle. We're going to sin. But what a blessed truth to know that our gracious God is a forgiving God and He hangs on to us. 
and he seals us. A seal is a symbol of safety, security, and ownership. He marks us as his, and he secures us in the Lord Jesus Christ under the day of our redemption. That's a reference to the redemption of Romans 8.23 called the redemption of the body when we enter into the fullness of our eternal salvation. Sealed under the day of redemption. You know, I'm glad I, I know a Lord like that who's that loving and gracious and kind and faithful to me. I don't deserve that. But it sure makes me want to please Him and serve Him. To know that that's the kind of a God we know. Confess sin. Truthfulness, self-control, honesty and industry, mutual edification. Confess sin. Verses 31 and 32. I don't know how you can sum all that up in one word. But I think probably the word kindness sums up these seven things in these two verses. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Let's go through these words quickly. Let all this be put away from you, Paul says. This is all part of walking in love, folks. All bitterness. That word has the idea of settled hostility, irritability, perpetual animosity. You know, you've known folks who, who just seem to constantly be upset about something and picking at somebody about something. They're unloving and, and they're fretting about somebody doing something that they didn't agree with. You know, that's bitterness. It's that settled hostility, that inner agitation that just keeps spilling out. Put it away. Put it away, God says. Secondly, wrath. That's the word that means the outburst of temper. It's that mental excitement that bitterness produces that causes infuriation that explodes and spills out all around us. Put it away, God says. It's not part of a walk in love. And then comes the anger. That's the lingering frame of mind. The deep-seated resentment. The dark hostility that engulfs our souls. After we've exploded, then it just kind of settles down and lingers on sometimes. That's the anger. Put it away. It's not part of a walk in love. All bitterness. All wrath. All anger. All clamor. Clamor is an interesting word. It, it's kind of like the wrath, but it's that loud outward expression of it. It's the ranting and raving and, and yelling at people when we're disturbed with them. Clamor. Uh, then the next one is evil speaking or slander. It's really the Greek word blasphemia, from which we get our English word blasphemy. It's, it's speech that's intended to injure. It comes from two Greek words meaning to speak and to injure. Injurious speech. It's the malicious expression of our bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor that tries to injure other people, destroys their reputation. Slander. With all malice. Malice is kind of a viciousness. It's the corrupt condition of our soul that, that uh, desires to see somebody else suffer. A maliciousness. It's a hatefulness, really. It's a, it's a bad, bad word. I mean, it's just the kind of thing none of us want to be. And yet, sometimes we let this kind of thing creep into our lives. We really want to see somebody fall upon hard times for some reason or other. Paul says, put that kind of thing away. 
That's not a part of a walk in love. And after those six negative words, we get the positive side of it. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted or compassionate, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. The only way we can put all those other six things away is if we are willing to forgive. You see, it's a lack of forgiveness that usually causes the bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. When we learn to forgive others, even when they wrong us, then God can wash all that rot out of our lives. And we can be kind one to another and compassionate one to another and do what the Lord did for us, forgive one another. That's all part of a walk in love. Be ye therefore, verse 1 of chapter 5, here it is. This is what we've been talking about. A conduct of conformity to the very image of God. Be ye therefore followers of God, imitators of God. Learn to live as God would live. Do what the Lord Himself would do. We're His dear children. We're in His family. We have His nature. As dear children, Paul says, be imitators of God and walk in love. Even as Christ also hath loved us and have given Himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. That's the climax of this description of our conformity to God in relationship to other believers. Our walk in love Here's the climax. Love one another even as the Lord Jesus loves us. And He loved us so much He was willing to offer Himself as a sacrifice in our behalf. A smelling sacrifice. That's a reference back to the Old Testament. You know, there were five offerings in the Old Testament. Three of them were called sweet savor offerings. The burnt offering which symbolized the perfection of Christ's character or His complete dedication to the will of the Father. The meal offering which symbolized His perfection of character. And the peace offering which prefigured his provision of peace for godless sinners with a holy God. And those offerings were well-pleasing unto the Lord. That's why they're called sweet savor offerings. It means offerings that are well-pleasing to him. The Lord Jesus offered one that was well-pleasing to him. And it was an offering that was not only a burnt offering and a meal offering and a peace offering. It was also a sin offering and a trespass offering that provided for us forgiveness and everlasting life. And God was well pleased with that offering and it provided for us forgiveness of sins. And now God wants us to look at the Lord Jesus as our example. That one who loved us so much he was willing to give his life for our salvation and to love one another like that. That's really the message we want ringing in our hearts as we come to the Lord's table tonight. We're here to remember his death, his sacrifice on our behalf. But let's not forget the final verse of this section of Scripture. But walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and given Himself for us. The application of the Lord's table tonight is that we are one body in Christ. Members one of another. We need to love one another. And walk before one another in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Seal this message from your word to our hearts, we pray. Now as we meditate on it around the table of the Lord Jesus, make it real to us, make it meaningful to us. 
Help us not only to remember what He did for us, but to think through some of the ramifications of what we need to be doing for one another. We ask it in His precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message by Dr. Richard L. Strauss. Copyright 2021. Spiritual Gold, Inc. All rights reserved. For more on this ministry and for additional resources, be sure to visit spiritualgold.org.